Luke chapter 18 is going to give us our next lesson in regard to church and church membership, which is persistence in prayer. The Lord Jesus expects his people to be persistent in prayer. Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 1. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? One of the expectations of a church and of church members is that they will pray. We see this through the example of, of the earliest churches in Scripture. After the ascension of the Lord Jesus in Acts 1, the church is described as continuing with one accord in prayer. The response to the church, to persecution and threats in Acts chapter 4, was to pray for boldness together. The missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul found their root in Acts chapter 13 in a church prayer meeting. So we see prayer through the example of the earliest churches. We also see prayer through the consistent commandment for the Lord's churches. Let me give you many examples of the commands for a church to pray. Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 says to continue earnestly in prayer and be vigilant in it that with thanksgiving. And uh, Romans 12, verse 12, commands churches to be rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and continuing steadfastly in prayer. Ephesians 6, 18, tells us to be praying always with all prayer and supplications in the Spirit. 1 Timothy 2, 1 reads, Therefore I exhort first that all... Uh, that first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. James tells us in James 5.16 to confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed because the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You know, Paul simply says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. And the Apostle Peter commands in 1 Peter 4, 7, hear this, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. While there are many 
many more texts that we could quote that should provide an adequate foundation that the Lord's churches are to be in constant prayer. In fact, the final two that I mentioned where Paul says, pray without ceasing, and Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. It isn't just a command that's found in the New Testament letters. That's the context of the Lord Jesus' teaching here in Luke chapter 18. You can see in verse 1 that the purpose of the parable is that men always ought to pray and not to lose heart. But just as Peter said to be serious and watchful in prayer is the end of all things is coming closer, Jesus' teaching in this lesson on persistent prayer is that we're to pray for the same reason, because the end is coming closer. Leading up to this parable that Jesus gives on prayer is a discussion about the end of all things. So look back for just a moment at chapter 17. In Luke 17, verse 20, the Pharisees challenged the Lord Jesus by asking for a definitive answer on when the kingdom of God would come. And this is what Jesus says in Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. So in the mind of the Pharisees, if Jesus really was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, what he would be doing at that moment was throwing off the yoke of their enemies and bringing a great military victory against the occupying Roman army, right? Do some things that we can see what it is that you're doing. But Jesus said the kingdom of God does not come with observation or in other words you're not going to see the signs that you're hoping to see instead you're missing it because you're waiting for someone to say look here or look there and the kingdom of God is within you although Jesus certainly was not saying that the kingdom of God was within the hearts of the Pharisees what he's saying is it is within you in the sense of the kingdom of God is among you Right, The kingdom is present right now because the king is standing in front of you talking. And so he goes on through the rest of Luke 17 and gives many signs about the end times. In verse 25, Jesus must first suffer and be rejected. In verses 26 through 29, he describes the end coming as suddenly as the flood in Noah's day or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Lot's day, although I will say, think about this, Noah was not surprised by the coming of the flood, and Lot was preserved during the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord Jesus describes the rapture in verses 34 through 36, describing some will be taken and some will be left. So that's the context here, the understanding that the end is coming near, that Jesus continues his teaching to his disciples and says the faithful response of believers is to live in the expectation of his return. And one of the main ways that we do that is verse 1, 
always be praying and never lose heart. Or as Peter said, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. In fact, hear me, unless we remember that that is the context of this parable, when we get to the conclusion of the parable, the conclusion's not going to make any sense. Now with that context in mind, let's see what Jesus has to teach about persistence in prayer. He does it through a, a parable, through a story, and there is no better storyteller than the Lord Jesus. The tale he tells here, though it is short, has all the vital elements of a good story. We'll see the reason for the story in verse 1. We'll see there's a villain in this story in verse 2. In verses 3 through 5, you'll see the hero of the story. And verses 6 through 8, we'll see the moral of the story. So the reason for the story is in verse 1. While it's perfectly right for us to enjoy the good storytelling ability of Jesus, we should remember he wasn't like a you know, a traveling minstrel going out telling stories for the purpose of entertainment. Every time the Lord Jesus told a story, there was a reason for it. We ought to look for the purpose. And the reason for this one is not at all hard to detect. Verse 1, he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. That term, lose heart, describes giving up or giving in the king james version has it as not to faint and that is a really great way to put it because the idea of losing heart or fainting is that you give up because you are too weary you're too discouraged you're too frustrated to go on as the disciples of jesus we have a savior who understands us and in this case It's clear he understands that his disciples will have the temptation to give up, to lose heart. You can find yourself tempted to give up because you feel like you just can't go on anymore. You can be tempted to lose heart because you're watching the world around you do wrong and it seems like All their wrongdoing is paying off. So why don't you just give up? Why don't you just give in and do wrong with them? We're sometimes tempted to faint in moments when our faith does not seem like it is big enough to get us through the trials of life. By the way, if that's you, just remember your hope is not in the strength of your faith in Jesus Your hope is in the strength of Jesus, and he is strong enough. In the context here, the danger seems to be that disciples of Jesus will lose heart as they await his coming and the great resolution of all things at the end. So if you've ever found yourself at a point in life where you've prayed, but you feel like losing heart because the answer hasn't come, The Lord Jesus hasn't come. It doesn't seem like either one of them are coming fast enough. First, 
take some comfort that the Lord Jesus understands that you are going to face that temptation to lose heart. But then also recognize Jesus does not present losing heart as an option. Right? He spoke this parable that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Persistence in prayer is the way the people of God will be able to keep our feet and not to faint. We will lose heart when we lose our connection to God in prayer. So Jesus says men always ought to pray. Paul says pray without ceasing. Man, how do we do that? Like, is it practically possible for someone to be praying all the time? Like, if, if you and I need to go somewhere together and your habit is always to be praying with your head bowed and your eyes closed, you're not driving. Give me the car keys. The point of pray without ceasing or you always ought to pray is not that Christians, they can't do anything but pray. The point is Christians recognize we can't do anything without prayer. Praying should be as natural as breathing. You know your lungs have a continual life-giving need of air, but you don't think about it every moment. Praying is that natural understanding where you recognize that the needs of your life require the continual life-giving guidance of God. So the reason for Jesus' story is in the light of waiting for His coming, We ought to always be in prayer so that we don't lose heart. The rest of the story unfolds as an example of why persistent prayer should be valued by the people of God. This is a master course in storytelling because Jesus does not start the story with the hero of the story. Jesus starts the story by telling us about the villain. Look at verse 2, the villain of the story. He was saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. That's not much of a description, but that is all we need to know. All you need to know about the character of this judge is found in the words, He did not fear God nor regard man. Now, you, you might take some small comfort in knowing that as Jesus said this about a politician in their area, that it was relatable to his disciples and to the people who were ta- he was talking to. It is not a modern phenomenon to see someone rise to power without possessing the moral character necessary to wield that power. And look how Jesus tells this story. Just in case someone would complain and say, well, you can't know that man's heart. Maybe that's just public opinion. Maybe the judge isn't really that bad. When verse 4 describes the innermost thoughts of this unjust judge, the first words that he thinks are, though I do not fear God nor regard man. And so let's ask ourselves this question. 
if this man does not fear, he does not reverence God, and he does not regard, he doesn't care about others, what does he care about? Yeah, that one's not hard to figure out, right? Obviously, the one thing he holds most dear to himself is himself. He has no concern about the creator. He has no compassion towards those that were created. Everything in his world revolves around himself. He is the bright sun at the center of his own universe. And let's just take this a step farther. Since this man is a judge in a city of Israel, what law is this judge supposed to uphold? Obviously, it's the Old Testament law. The standard for all his judgment should be the fair and impartial application of the law of God. And while there's all kinds of commands and prohibitions and rules within that law, the Lord Jesus has been clear as he says that the essence of the Old Testament law is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this very man whose job it is to apply the law that says to love God supremely and love others like yourself, his own character by his own admission is, I do not reverence God and I don't regard man. Can there be anyone who is less qualified to be a judge than the man that Jesus has described here? He is, in the words of Jesus, an unjust judge. He is selfish. The man is crooked and corrupt. He is underhanded. He is unscrupulous. He is dishonest. He's devious. There's there's nothing good about him. I'm stressing this because I want to make sure you know just how bad the villain of the story is because by the time we're done, you're going to be taking advice from him. The unjust judge is the villain of the story. Now let's see the hero of the story. Starting at verse 3, there was a widow in that city. And she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. Remember, as you picture this, Jesus is instructing his disciples clearly under the watchful eye of those Pharisees from back in chapter 17. And if the introduction of the story's villain and the description of him was cause for the audience to cringe, the introduction of the parable's hero would have been a cause for, for, for groaning. One of the most clear calls for a judge under the law, the very reason that men needed to be men of righteousness and compassion, was that they were to dispense justice for the most helpless people in society. So for example, Deuteronomy 27 verse 19 says, Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. 
So for this judge to exist is already a travesty of justice. But for this widow to fall under his jurisdiction is a tragic twist of fate. Jesus describes her in desperate terms, right? She is a a woman in a time and in a culture when women were not highly respected as they ought to be. She was a widow whose provision and protection had been taken away. It had been lost due to the death of her husband. Apparently, she's on her own. She doesn't have a, a father or a son or a brother or someone who's willing and able to stand up and speak on her behalf. She clearly has an adversary who she cannot handle on her own. We, we are not given details because for Jesus' story, this part's not that important, but we can just picture her being entangled in some kind of financial dispute with some man who sought to take advantage of her after her husband died. Worst of all, she lives under the jurisdiction of this unjust justice who neither feared God nor regarded people. And so listen to what happens when this desperate widow appeals to this callous magistrate. In verse 3, there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she wearies me. Under normal circumstances, the story wouldn't have been that long. The widow would have appealed for justice in verse 4, he would not, and that would have been the end of the story. Right? She would have been left helpless and hopeless by his refusal. It's not as if there was some further court of appeals that she could take this to. The widow didn't have the power or authority to force this judge to hear her case. She didn't have any political or social connections to influence him in her favor. He probably would have accepted a bribe, but she either didn't have the money or the inclination to pay him a bribe. And so instead, she put all of her eggs in one basket, though he had refused her. The idea in verse 4 is even for a while. That is, he repeatedly refused her. She continued to rely on on the only resource available that might convince him to change his mind. She relied on appealing persistently. She would not take no for an answer. You have to think, in her mind, she might end up losing this battle, but not before she gave a good accounting of herself in the fight. Back in verse 3, it says she came to him. The idea there is that she kept on coming to him, appealing, give me justice. And so she keeps on coming, right? He, He leaves the house that morning in order to head to the office, and there's the widow on the sidewalk yelling, give me justice. 
He pulls his BMW up into his reserved parking space in the, at the courthouse and he gets out and the widow's standing there in the parking garage saying, give me justice. He steps out of his chambers after a short break and he walks out in the hallway and there she is in the crowded hallway screaming, give me justice. Okay, obviously, that's a bit of an exaggeration. He probably wasn't driving a BMW. The point is, she wore him down with her continual persistence. The words that he speaks, that his words from verse 5 are very telling. I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming, she wearies me. That word weary in the original language is hupo piazzo, and it means to strike someone in the face and give them a black eye or to wear them down with torment. Now maybe the idea here is that she's going to give him a black eye in the, in the sight of the people. Although, I doubt that's the case because we already know what he thinks about the people. He doesn't care what they think. So I think the idea here is she's going to exhaust him, her persistence is going to wear him out now that story just by itself might have been adequate encouragement for jesus's disciples right if if this widow can be persistent in appealing to this unjust judge then you and i can be persistent in prayer christ's disciples the community of believers can always pray and not lose heart. Her refusal to give up or give out or lose heart was rewarded when her petition was ultimately answered. But that's not the end of the story that Jesus is taking us to. In verses 6 through 8, Jesus demands we wrestle with the implications of this little parable that he gives by issuing a surprising command, and then a couple of introspective questions. So we've seen the reason for the story, the villain of the story, the hero of the story. Now look at the moral of the story in verses 6 through 8. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall, not, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? There's nobody who can turn an audience on its ear more effectively than the Lord Jesus. A surprising command comes in verse 6. Every single person listening to this parable, and even you and I, so far as we've gone through this parable, we would have been focused on the widow and trying to learn a lesson from her, and yet Jesus hammers home the moral of the story by saying, hear what the unjust judge said. The greatest lesson of the parable is not just trying to find a parallel to the widow, it's learning a lesson from the villain, right? Learning a lesson from the unjust judge. 
So what is it we're supposed to learn from this unjust judge? Well, the lesson is found in two introspective questions Jesus asks. The first question is in verse 7. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? Y'all, I got to say this. If it had been anybody other than Jesus who decided to make a comparison between a corrupt judge and the righteous God, I don't think I would have listened. But when Jesus does it, and clearly that's what he's doing here, we better make sense of it. There are ways that God can be compared in similarity to the judge in Jesus' story. So stick with me, because even though they are polar opposites in character, right? God is a judge. Furthermore, this judge is described as being motivated by nothing more than himself. God, our judge, is also self-existent and self-motivated. The theological term we use for that is the aseity of God. He is not constrained or moved by anything outside of himself. Now, if this is making you uncomfortable, just relax. Because though God is self-existent and self-motivated, that does not mean he is self-ish. Love and compassion is something that is in God that is not in this unjust judge. Another similarity is like this judge, God is the only one we can come to with an appeal because he's the only one who can help. This unjust judge had jurisdiction over a certain city and that was the only person the widow could come to. But when we come to God who is the judge, he is judge who presides over all heaven and earth. So there are similarities But the essence of this parable is found in the contrasts. God is not corrupt. He's not crooked. He's not unjust. He is unwaveringly fair. The unjust judge is the bad guy of the story, but goodness is an attribute of our judge. He's good all the time. James says that every good And perfect gift comes from God. And he does not change. So when you pray, when you bring your appeal to God, do it knowing that you, unlike this widow, you are appealing to a good and just judge. God is always just. The judgment of God is not affected by your skin color, your sex, your race, your wealth. God is not a respecter of persons, meaning he does not look at people that way. Now this is, in one way, incredibly good news because whoever you are and whatever you have done, you are on fair ground when you stand before God as your judge. But this is also incredibly bad news because since God judges by a righteous and just standard, 
you and I, when we stand before God as our judge, we do not measure up. You think of the contrast here. You had this good widow woman who was standing in front of a corrupt judge, and now Jesus is going to compare it to corrupt people standing before a righteous judge. God judges by the standard of his own goodness and holiness. The, the proof that God is a just God can be seen at the cross. The death of Jesus on the cross was a miracle of divine justice in which God demonstrated his love without violating his holiness. Right on the cross, God poured out his wrath on Jesus as if Jesus had committed all of our sin and he did it so that he could pour out his goodness and kindness on us as if we had lived righteously as Jesus did. And so when you repent of your sins and you look to Jesus in faith, you will be on the right side of this righteous judge. And only then, when you pray, you can remind yourself of that miracle of divine justice and know that what God has done for you is evidence of what God is willing to do for you. As Paul says in Romans 8.32, if God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, if he's, if he's willing to give us his only son for salvation, what is it that you think this good God is somehow going to withhold from you if he was willing to give you that? But... God is not going to serve you like a short order cook ready to deliver on your timetable. Because he is good and because he is just, he is also good at answering our prayers at just the right time. When Jesus asked the question, shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out to him day and night though he bears along with them? Right? You, you see the parallel there. You can be in con- you can be persistent in prayer day and night like this widow who continually appealed to the judge and just like that judge delayed, Jesus said God might delay as well. The difference is the unjust judge delayed out of apathy and selfishness but when God delays, it is not because he doesn't care, and it's not because he only cares about himself. The judge didn't care about that widow, but Jesus says here in his question, God cares for his own. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Shall God not avenge his own elect? Right? We're talking about people who God loves, people who God chose to save, people God delights in showing grace and mercy. And so when you pray with persistence, do not think that you are persisting in prayer as a means of trying to overcome God's unwillingness to answer your prayer. We pray with persistence in prayer as a means to grab a hold of God's willingness to answer and do good for us.
And if he delays, it's not because he doesn't care. It's because his timing is better than our timing. Verse 8, the beginning of verse 8, it says, He will avenge them speedily. That is, he will ensure they get justice suddenly. Jesus says he'll do it in a timely manner. But the timetable is his to execute. And so then what is there for us to do? The point of the parable, right? Always to pray and never to lose heart. So we'll wrap this up the way that Jesus does with his second introspective question at the end of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Right? We said back at the beginning that if we did not keep the context in mind, the conclusion of the parable is not going to make sense. The Pharisees had just asked Jesus about the establishment of the kingdom and what's it going to look like at the end of all things. And Jesus has adjusted the ignorance of their thinking, but also proclaims that his second coming is what God's people should be looking forward to. So it's not if the Son of Man comes. He says when the Son of Man comes. He is going to come. You're waiting for him to come. And yet in the meantime, while we're waiting, we're always to pray and to never lose heart. So are you willing to do that? As a community of believers, are we willing to be persistent in prayer, awaiting the coming of the Lord Jesus? Because this question actually is a challenge. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth There is actually a definite article before the word faith there in the original language, meaning what Jesus is asking is, when he comes, will he find the faith on the earth? This tells us the point of the parable isn't to ask whether or not we're going to see him when he comes. The question is whether he's going to see us when he comes. Right? Is he going to find people who have always prayed and never lost heart? Is he going to find a community of faith that is waiting patiently for the end of all things, for the, for the consummation of justice of a holy God? How is the community of faith, the church, going to be identified when the Lord Jesus comes? I think based on the meaning of the parable, they're going to be identified because they're going to be the ones that are always praying and have never lost heart. You see, God is not like this unjust judge because he's good and righteous and just and loving. And because God is not like this unjust judge, then you and I are not like this poor widow. We do have an adversary to overcome. We are helpless and hopeless on our own. We should be appealing to the one judge of all the earth who can actually do right for us. But we're bringing our appeals to a God who knows us and chose us and loves us. And that's all the cause we need to always pray and never lose heart. The people of God are to continue in prayer 
to God until the ultimate return of the Son of God. And as this world looks more desperate and hostile every day, and we see you know, the time approaching where we would want the Lord Jesus to come, our response must be, as Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. As Paul says, pray without ceasing, or as the Lord Jesus teaches us in this text, always pray and never lose heart.